next hour on most of these the same frequencies. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the program. Today we are going to talk about a rather serious topic, the future. This is Cracking the Code with Sudhir Ispahani. In this episode, Silicon Valley venture capitalist and partner at Artiman Ventures, Ajit Singh, discusses what he believes to be the true role of a leader. Leadership really came to me when I had some really good leaders as my bosses. So, and again, if I fast forward the tape, I have often said, what do leaders do? And often the answer is they mobilize, they, you know, they have followers. No, leaders don't create followers. Leaders create other leaders. Ajit also knows the importance of focus, finding the balance of being both driven and aware. Good leaders also happen to be good visionaries. They come up with new ideas that deserve attention. And it's very easy to be drawn to the next shiny object. And you lose sight of the fact that you are executing—you in the middle of executing. Right. Do not lose sight of the ball. Do not lose sight of the goal. In the end, the true path to success comes down to common sense and knowing how to treat others justly and wisely. A few things I have learned that we should not do as leaders. I have learned from my own behavior and I have learned from observing others. Do not be a jerk. So the principles of life apply to principles of leadership. Do not be a jerk. Every piece of aggression is rooted in security. And that, when that comes out, we act like jerks. So I'm stating the obvious, first and foremost, do not be a jerk as a leader. And now, your guide for cracking the code, Sudhir Ispahani. Ajit, it's, uh, it's been an incredible uh, journey of friendship. I look back to 2010, 2011, when we first started talking through association of business friends and colleagues. And uh, it's been my privilege to get to know you as a friend. And I've never seen a more generous person and giving person in the world of high-flying business, as they say in Silicon Valley, uh, of somebody like you who steps out of the way when you are willing to uh, jump in on a personal basis. And in my case, in my family's health, issues, cases, you've just gone way out of your your boundaries to help us. But more importantly, your uh, your character as a friend uh, is something I aspire to, to learn from and want to be. I'm so thankful to have you and call you a friend. Very mutual, Sudhir, and uh, while you are very kind and very humble in stating that, uh, so I will modify uh, sort of a well-known quote, it takes one to notice one. <laughs> to say it takes one to create one. It really does. You know, the, both parties, parties have to create the space for the other person to be themselves. Yes. And uh, I can, I can, I still have a very vivid recollection of our, our meeting in 2011, Feb, Feb 2011, just before I started at Ardman. Yeah. Uh, we met uh, in the elevator lobby in front <laughs> of the Four Seasons Hotel. Yeah. Um, and it was one of those things which very organically uh, said, this deserves to be a friendship. It's been a great journey. I hope it'll be a wonderful longer journey as we continue that and growing and learning from each other. And for me, it's been wonderful. And thank you for being there for me and for us as a family. Uh, Thank you also. It's been uh, my honor. You're only the second venture, third venture capitalist actually within Silicon Valley. The first one with Ardaman Ventures to join my podcast. Uh, I'm honored to have you on Cracking the Code with Sudhir Ispahani. It's a podcast, as we talked about, that is more focused around the life learnings of individuals and leaders. 
And part of it is a give back to the next generation of young leaders. Uh, my oldest daughter reminded me a while ago, and my youngest daughter does all the time to say, once you put these learnings out with the luminaries and leaders that you have out there, it stays in digital form forever. So this is just uh, my give back and our give back and your give back for the future generations. And I thank you for taking the time. Absolutely. And that makes this podcast much more meaningful for me. It's a greater purpose. Thank you. Typically, where we start with our guests, Ajit, is, uh, you know, it's all our journeys start with childhood. If you can, um, you know, give a little bit of um, color for our guests on where your life started, how life was like at home, growing up, mom and dad, siblings, you know, and uh, and give us a little bit of that journey. We'll chart that, that journey all the way to, to your current state. I grew up in India yeah. uh, until my early 20s. Um, I was one of two siblings. I'm the older of the two. I have a younger brother who's four years younger than me. Uh, my dad was a civil engineer. My mom was a homemaker. And by the time I went to college, the first 16, 16 and a half years of my life, we lived in three different cities. Uh, I was born in a town called Aligarh, uh, northern India. Then yeah. next several years, we lived in Jammu, uh, including the time during which the first Indo-Pak war took place, or the second Indo-Pak war, 1971. And then in 73, we moved to Kanpur. Uh, and, and then I was there until I finished my 11th grade and then went to college from there mm. in a town called Varanasi. Right. And I stayed there till, till my 20s, uh, till my early 20s. Um, simple, simple home, simple childhood, uh, like most middle class or lower middle class homes. So there was never dearth of essentials, but there was never excess or even near excess of any luxuries. Right. So, which is a, a very typical, typical story of a middle class. The, the recollections I have from those days are, are experiences, not, not things, but experiences. Right. So we used to travel a lot. My dad was with the railways. Mm-hmm. which meant lots of free passes to travel across India. So we we had seen the length and breadth of India by the time I turned 15 or 16. Wow. Each of those journeys was... So my dad, I mean, of course, it's it's very easy to deify someone and they're no longer with you. So I have no exception there. So I have a very idealized version of him now. The, the, the train journey used to be an education session in itself, whether it was refining something in English grammar or reading a storybook and being quizzed on it. Uh, so I'll give you one one very interesting recollection I have. So when I went to college, he, he said to me that you really must write a letter every week. We had no phone, telegram was yes. cumbersome. So I took it to heart and every Sunday I would write a letter. Sometimes it was a paragraph, hey, everything is fine, I have finals tomorrow. And sometimes it was a little bit more elaborate. So first summer break, I come home and my dad has a stack of a dozen of my letters and he has marked them, redlined them in red pen. Wow. Missing commas, T's not crossed, I's not dotted, wrong grammar, unsophisticated style. And I'm saying, hey, come on, I was writing a letter to you, not an essay to be debated <laughs> on. And he goes, no, 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 it, it, this is where you learn. So anyway, I got used to it. And in every one of my letters, I have about 250 of them. Uh, there would be somewhere between eight or a dozen errors that he would highlight. In 1983, I wrote him a letter 
uh, I was in some maybe nostalgic mood and I said, you know, Dad, my first memory of learning from you yeah. is when you taught me how to tie my shoelaces. And I described the scene. I was kindergartner and he came to my school and we had lunch <laughs> together and he saw that my these brown shoes had come untied, the, the, the shoelaces had come untied. Right. And he did them and then he showed me how to do it. So now <laughs> on this letter, he has highlighted only one error. When I read it, there are other errors too. He highlighted only one thing. Yeah. So he took the sentence, my first memory of learning from you. Yeah. He crossed out the word from and wrote with. My first memory of learning with you, not from you. Wow. And he goes, the teacher also learns always. So that, that kind of highlights for you what my, what my childhood and early adulthood was. He was a very empathetic person. There's many, 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 many stories of his empathy and humanity that deserve to be called out maybe in a different conversation or it maybe comes up later today. Yeah. Uh, so that was my childhood. You know, it's fascinating to hear some of those insights that, uh, that you picked up that early from mom and dad. As you know, a lot of us uh, build our foundational morals and values through childhood, first of all, observing our parents, you know. So if you can continue for the benefit of our audience to highlight some of those insights that you picked up as, as a child, observing dad and mom, and then, wow. of course, something from your siblings. So I will, I will start somewhere long after I left India. Right. You know, I was away from my mom and dad, but then I'll rewind the tape to back. So I came across a book probably in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, it's titled, All I Needed to Know, I Learned in Kindergarten. It's by Robert Fulgham. Very often the books that are written for children are actually written for adults. And I've reminded myself of that more and more often. This is a book written for adults that should be read by children. Right. So I give you a couple of instances. So we used to have a home servant, which most middle-class Indians do in some way. Right. And my father set the rule for him that you have to leave at 8 o'clock at night. It cannot be 8.01. So 7.59 or 8. <laughs> Often, like he'll be doing some dishes or cleaning something up. And he'll, my dad will look at his watch and it's 8 o'clock. And he'll, he'll grab him by hand and he'll say, Narsing, go. <laughs> and my mom would step in and say, wait, wait a minute. Like he's got two more dishes in the sink. Let him do it. And my dad would say, no, you know. Today it's 8.01, tomorrow will be 8.05, then it's 8.20, then it's 8.30. He has a wife and kids as well at home. So he goes. And then my mom would say, but who's going to do the dishes? I'm not going to put my hand in cold water now. And my dad would say, okay, I'll do it. Now, in an Indian man in India, mm -hmm. it's a generally very patriarchal, very male-oriented society. Yes. For him to just, you know, drop what he was doing and, uh, and go and do the dishes. I saw this growing up and there was... Later in life, you know, when I would find myself doing dishes in the kitchen, these these memories would be would be very real to me. That, that there was no inhibition of stepping into any role. Um, uh, similarly, I, I remember when my father passed away. Uh, just before his passing, I had give, I had sent him a coat, a, a winter coat, from a store called Alexander's in Queens, New York, and I spent nineteen dollars and ninety nine cents to buy it, and I sent it to him, and. Before he could have used it well, he passed away. So now, I, when I arrived in India, I saw that one of our employees, his wife was wearing that coat. And, and that employee noticed me noticing that, that the coat was being worn by her. 
And later in the evening, he approached me. He goes, yeah, I, Sabji, you know, sir, I, I, I saw that you were noticing that quote. Actually, your dad gave it to my wife just when it arrived. And I said, and what, how did that happen? He goes, he saw her in the morning. He was going for his walk and she was pregnant and uh, she was cooking, cooking some tea or food or whatever in the cold. I mean, October gets somewhat cold in India. These stories, I mean, they are, you know, obviously when you look back at them, I, I create a larger than life version of the story itself because obviously when somebody's not with you, you tend to create a, a more dignified, a, a larger story. Yeah. But this was, this was what I learned growing up. This was a very, very strong impression from childhood. We would be going on a rickshaw mm. somewhere and occasionally you'll have to go over a flyover of a sort, like a sure. overpass, yeah. and it'll be a slope. Yeah. And the rickshaw puller would get off the rickshaw and pull it. Right. And he would ask, so my mom would stay on the rickshaw, but he would ask me and my brother to get off the rickshaw and push the rickshaw from behind. Right. So it'll be easier on the rickshaw puller. <laughs> <laughs> so those those stories have have uh, they were very formative and as as we will we'll get into our follow on discussion on leadership and yes. and other things in life these things played a very important role played a very very important role you know actually hearing you talk about this early life journey i know we've had some privileges of great conversations but not to the depth of this detail but uh, it's sort of uh, very much reflects who you are as a person, Ajit. I mean, that to me is very satisfying to hear that, that this early in the in your life, you had so much of opportunity to pick up insights from, you know, uh, what starts life's journey with mom and dad, really. It's only to, you know, stitch that chapter up. My mom had a similar role as an observer, sometimes as a speaker. So there was a conversation between my mom and dad where my mom was going to New Delhi and she would spend X number of days at her, my grandparents from my dad's side and Y number of days at my grandparents on my mom's side. Mom's side. Yeah. And my, my father said something very simple. I'll say in Hindi and I'll translate. Yeah. He, you know, please use one scale, not two scales. <laughs> and, and, and while it was a simple lesson, she also internalized it. She did not become defensive. Yes. Uh, and, and that also shows her strength uh, in being able to take a statement and not not make an, uh, uh, an issue out of it that stems from insecurity or stems from, so which also showed me she was a very strong person. I didn't realize it then. <laughs> I realized that many, 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 almost decades later that she must have been a very strong person to, to take that statement and convert to a dialogue and, and have a comeback and demonstrate that she was using one scale. That's amazing. So my own journey of fairness, uh, you know, ha has been rooted in those stories. With this kind of an upbringing and 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 childhood, did you um, did you ever have in your mind that you knew what you wanted to be when you grew up, or was that sort of formulated a lot by by mom and dad? You know, in terms of what you really wanted to do in life. So I didn't. Um, so I, I honestly did not have a long term plan. I very often didn't even have a short term plan. <laughs> so. And, and part of it is Indian upbringing. I mean, you do what's needed to be done. You go to school and at some point, depending on the grades you get, you are thrown into uh, either the sciences or the arts. And those things are somehow made for you. Right. Uh, if I now revisit everything and say, would I have made a different decision? I don't know. Uh, probably not. 
but there was not a big direction set by anyone other than the fact that education was important. So that much we knew. So rewind the tape to my both my parents being immigrants from what is now Pakistan, right. and they came to the Indian side of what is now India, and had to build from scratch. And but they left a large land holding behind, and they had they were my dad's side of the family. Eleven members of the family were given a one room house, and two rupees of pittance. It was called a pittance per month. Wow. And from there, my dad, being the oldest of all, you know, went to school, got basically walked seven kilometers and got himself admitted in the fourth grade. Yeah. And then, so it, those stories also helped understand that look, there was no, we didn't have any inheritance, no wealth, no land. Sure. So education was the only path to some level of financial freedom, and financial freedom was what mattered at the time. I was not looking for some big intellectual delight or uh, being a Renaissance person of some sort. It was just how to be self-sufficient. That was about all. And over time, of course, there were people who came in my life who helped shape and gave direction and, you know, that deserves some conversation. But early in childhood, I wouldn't say that there were some goals that were mid or long term. It was fairly short term. Okay, I'm in my first semester of engineering and I got to get the best, best grades possible. And okay, that was a goal. And I made sure that I get got close to it, if not to it. Wonderful. And clearly, you know, you, you look at your career now, both academically and professionally, you've had an incredible journey and, uh, and a super successful one. We'll talk in a little bit about that. But uh, but somewhere along the line, uh, leadership became part of your uh, part of your life. When did that happen? When did you start seeing that you could be a leader and you want to be one. And you clearly have been a super successful leader in everything you've done, including your career now. So in terms of mentoring and coaching executives and CEOs and startup uh, entrepreneurs, you know. So walk us a little bit through that, through that journey, if you will, of how did leadership thoughts come into you? When did they come in? Did, was it early in college? You know, people do a lot sometimes in school and college with, you know, debates and, you know, leading groups and teams and everything else. So, please. Yeah. I cannot claim most of that. Um, I was a socially inept nerd. <laughs> Hard to believe, by the way. It depends. Maybe contextually I was not socially inept. But when I look back... Mm. There were examples I can think of where I acted in a pretty self-serving, selfish manner and and wasn't exactly aware of how my actions were around me. In retrospect, I can see. Right. Uh, but at that point, I could only see that I was I was not very well liked by most people mm -hmm. growing up. Uh, and that there were several pathologies there. You know, when you when you tend to do better in school, grades wise, you know, you alienate about 60, 70 percent of the class right there. Right. And, and it's, it's sort of inadvertently it happens, you know, and you have two choices at that time. You try to fit in, then you compromise your grades or you try to get your grades and you don't fit in. Right. And, and it's not that I did some big Excel sheet in my mind and say, OK, I have now these seven criteria and I will optimize. No, there wasn't much of a choice. Right. At home, it was clear you got to do good in school and everything else was secondary. Right. So I was not on the sports field at all. I, I don't think I ever stepped foot on the playground. I used to cut the class the playground, the, the games period, as he used to call, right. and go sit in the library, make up an excuse, I have a headache or a stomachache or something, or my leg is hurting. Right. And um, so there wasn't that much in terms of leadership instinct early on. Now, when I when I was in the U.S., uh, 
after grad school joined joined Siemens. Uh, there, I, I'll use a phrase I think that you used where you know leadership was kind of thrust upon me. One of my bosses almost like publicly announced in, in front of 50 people saying, hey, Dr. Singh, would you like to lead this group? And later on, people asked me that, come on, this must have been discussed between the two of us. I said, no, we had not discussed it. Right. And at that point, okay, I'm getting a promotion. I said, yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> and I realized that I was a lousy leader in retrospect again. I didn't know yeah. then. I had all the insecurities. I was competing with my team. I was uh, looking for credit from my team. In, in, and also very pathological way by saying, okay, you know, everybody's name would go on a paper. Why? The person who's done the workshop, his name should go on the paper. Or her name. <laughs> so I was doing some pretty stupid things in my first leadership role. So I was not much of a leader, I would say. I was, okay, I was a, named a manager and I was doing a poor job at it on top. <laughs> leadership really happened, uh, it came to me when I had some really good leaders as my bosses. So, and again, if I fast forward the tape, I have often said, what do leaders do? Uh, and often the answer is they mobilize, they, you know, they have followers. No, leaders don't create followers. Leaders create other leaders. Right. And, and I can genuinely say about two of my bosses, they pulled out the leader in me and created the leader in me. And, and now that said, once about... 15, 16 years ago, I was looking at my grade cards, report cards when I was first grader, second grader, third grader. So my first grade report card has all sorts of comments, you know, great this, that, and the other. And it said, avoid sports, is too loud in the class, and shows leadership instincts. <laughs> I have no idea what the teacher saw, what the class teacher saw, I have no clue. And I don't know whether there were some instincts that were dulled down later on by pressure of school, who knows. Uh, and they were, you know, 20 years later, they were drawn out by a good leader who was my boss. So I, I can't say it was, whether it was right or wrong, but I do have one piece of evidence in writing that says I showed some leadership instinct as a, as a six-year-old. I have no idea what that was. I, don't, I have no recollection of it. <laughs> So it does look like, you know, you were very much thrust into leadership, not really knowing what that compass looked like. And now, of course, your wisdom and learnings have been enormous to, to look back on them. Share with us a little bit of those insights, but one of the key, key questions that leads into these leadership insights that I have to ask you is, if you had to, decide, uh, if you had to define what your leadership style is, typically what would that be? And then, of course, for our audience, we'd love to have you share what your view on leadership is and, and what those learnings have been and what leaders should and shouldn't be. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's a, one has to delay that question. Yeah. There's a lot in that question itself. So I'll try to cover some dimensions of that question and maybe not comprehensive, but uh, with some anecdotes, I can illustrate that. Uh, so if, if I was to put the leadership style that I tend to use in one word, yeah. you said, you know, if there was one word that would capture it, that one word would be adaptive. Uh, mm -hmm. You have to really adapt to the situation. You have to adapt to cultural nuances, the level of security of a person, the level of safety that a team feels in the environment. You can build it up to whatever you want it to be. I think people can be molded. Yes. Uh, but as a leader, you really have to adapt to the mm -hmm. situation at hand. So, if I look at my experiences, I've had opportunities where I had to run a startup, right. opportunities where I had to do a turnaround job, 
business was in a in a loss leading situation very little innovation trouble with the fda that was a classic turnaround case then there was a business where i just had to maintain some things well okay. there was a situation where i had to shut down a factory and move it uh, overseas and each one of them required a different aspect or a different dimension of leadership mm. or different dimensions of leadership so the ability to instinctively adapt to the situation mm. probably would be the most compelling attribute uh, that i believe in or that i have come to internalize that i have come to learn and and to some degree even 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 master it master is a strong word mm. but uh, i've gotten better at that so now if i if i break it down further yeah a few attributes that are really important the first one is dialogue extremely important to create dialogue in the teams you lead yeah and a dialogue not in some in, in some simplistic definition of hey two people talk freely no dialogue is when two people listen to each other with genuine curiosity to understand the other person's viewpoint contextual to the situation we are in so right. viewpoint is also not absolute it's contextual to the situation so look at the burden you have to listen yeah with curiosity and genuine curiosity to understand not to respond but to understand we often listen to to respond yes we have to listen to understand the other person's viewpoint in the context at hand there is a lot of burden on the listener absolutely and and often you have to draw it out of the other person the other person may have a language barrier may have an insecurity may have may not be a good articulator of things may not be a good communicator so the burden is on you to draw it out of them it's a very inefficient process to create dialogue is extremely inefficient yeah and i have i'm i'm i've said in many meetings okay we will have an inefficient meeting imagine saying this in a german setting sitting in a boardroom <laughs> in munich we will have an inefficient meeting so that's one principle second principle is trust so i'd rather have 100% trust and 90% performance than the other way around yeah performance i know how to find you 90 can go to 99 or 100 if if you need it to be 100 depending on the situation yeah uh, trust if it goes from 100 to 99 it might as well go to zero because i don't know when the next shoe is going to drop extremely important so and then i have i've created a nerdy definition of trust it's credibility plus reliability plus vulnerability divided by self interest wow so credibility is you know what you're talking about yeah. reliability is you deliver what you said you will deliver vulnerability is you tell me if you're not going to deliver if you made a mistake if something yeah. has gone wrong make yourself vulnerable right. divide by self interest so self interest is not bad if i'm going into a negotiation session i better have self interest yeah but then my numerator better be very high the credibility reliability vulnerability better be very high for the trust to build yeah it also takes time you trust is not a precondition of a relationship it's the outcome of a relationship and then dialogue leads to trust trust can lead to performance it's it's a necessary condition not a sufficient condition yeah so performance has to have clear a clarity on roles clarity on goals perfect dialogue before a decision is made full transparency of facts and intentions so transparency of facts is hard enough right. transparency of intentions is even harder <laughs> yes and then execution you have right. to have a relentless accountable approach to execution there's a lot that goes into it but precondition is trust without right. trust you can't implement any of these five right so you you add these three principles up and that creates the foundation of a very high performance culture incredible insights 
on on uh, leadership now how how have you seen that practically play out uh, you know when you've shared these insights with uh, with your team with upcoming leaders with startup ceos you've had the privilege of the entire gamut of seeing life and leadership here um what have you seen by way of results and even as you practice them yourself the short answer is there is no shortcut these <laughs> things are organic they, they never you you cannot teach them in in one powerpoint deck or one lecture you cannot and i ask myself is there some other way people are led even if you don't want to lead by example you lead by example because as as human beings we learn by observing far more than we learn by listening to a lecture yeah we learn by observing and practicing far more than we learn by reading a book or listening to a lecture right so even if i didn't mean to lead by example who i was leading saw the example good or bad right yeah. because as humans we are wired to observe we are wired to observe and practice so it it so turns out that cliche is unnecessary you only lead by example to so for for me to stand up and give a lecture on the three principles of leadership okay that's easy internalized that you can speak to it with some authenticity and some examples yeah but it is each such instance that presents itself in a day where you apply these principles you apply them intuitively and then you explain them in words right it also makes that process a bit inefficient because now you have to explain hey see we applied that principle right but over time people begin to internalize and start practicing and occasionally you realize that some people won't mhm and on on one hand i would like to take that responsibility to to bring them to speed but you have to draw a line as a leader and say okay what will i not do and uh, or what i will not do my dad would have got that grammatical error <laughs> <laughs> and and you know yes to some degree you are your team's therapist mm-hmm. but if the pathologies are so deep that it's a long journey to clean some things up and then rebuild you from scratch right that's difficult to take on as an accountability as a responsibility right. and then you have to say okay i it's a conscious judgment call i need to make i need to remove them from the team and but do it in a humane manner and do it in a manner that uh they sets them up for rehabilitating themselves as opposed to becoming damaged goods right. that's that's quite important so uh i i i feel i feel rather good that people have had to fire uh, or lay off the lay off right. part was the easier one the people had to fire I I still am in touch with them. It may be one exception I'm in touch with them. I still speak with them. They turn to me, I turn to them. So it is possible to do even that act with ultimate humanity. That's just wonderful. Um you know part of leadership as you know uh, Ajit is is about learning for for those of us who are leaders. And um I have to ask you this question. What are some of the things that you have learned that you should not do as a leader so there's a writer called richard park yeah. he wrote this beautiful book um jonathan livingston seagull okay. it's a small 30 40 page book you can read in 20 30 minutes transformative for me or yeah. transformative for me uh, uh i read it in my mid 20s i think it was a birthday gift from a friend and then i read other uh, books of his including a book called the bridge across forever and a book called titan source and i remember a state a statement from there he goes do you want to know if your learning in this life is over well if you're alive it's not <laughs> simple statement and when yeah. you look at it and reflect on it it's it's almost always true you're always learning 
so I, I, I wouldn't claim that I have learned what I needed to know uh, <laughs> leadership. I still, every day I run into situations that I go back and refine my principles or add some nuance to it or add a comma or a, or a period somewhere. Uh, so that, that still happens. But a few things I have learned that, that we should not do as leaders. I have learned from my own behavior and I have learned from observing others. Do not be a jerk. So the principles of life apply to principles of leadership. Do not be a jerk. Right. Not, not being a jerk is not easy. Right. You, <laughs> being a jerk is not, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, let me try and do something really bad today. Right. Very few people be sociopaths who would do it. Most right. of us enter our day wanting to be okay, wanting to do right. But our training as a, in childhood, our training in early days of life makes us a certain way. Yeah. And when our insecurities are touched, they're, they're impinged upon, you know, some aggression comes out. Every aggression is rooted in insecurity. Every yeah. piece of aggression is rooted in insecurity. And that when that comes out, we act like jerks. Right. So, so I'm stating the obvious, first and foremost, do not be a jerk as a leader. Yeah. You should not be a jerk, period. But as a leader, it's really, really hurtful, really harmful. Second, do not compete with your people. I mean, their success is actually going to add up to your success. So shed that insecurity. Mm. This is very key. Uh, third, don't be insecure. Right? Now, it's a very easy statement to make. We're all learning it till we die. Uh, but the less insecure you are, the better leader you will become or better leader you can be or better leader you are. And each time I observe myself acting in an unleader-like manner, it stems from some insecurity of mine. Some, some, something has been touched in me that is evoking a defense mechanism. Right. And then from there, it's all downhill. So I, I have, as you can see, I have abstracted the question you asked to a certain, a slightly more meta level. Yeah. And I'm saying, let's look at those broad principles of what makes us a good human being first which is a prerequisite to be a good leader. Not only it's a necessary, but not sufficient condition. Those are the things I would not do. Now you can derive from it a number of th things that leaders should not do, which is depending on the situation, do not defocus your team too much. Do not be too opportunistic. Do not trade a plan for an opportunity too often. Sometimes it's good. You should be able to trade a plan for an opportunity. For the benefit of all the future leaders and all of us to learn, it's a learning for me itself. Hearing you talk, Ajit, even right now is, uh, you know, these insights are very key and they're very important for all of us to practice as uh, as leaders. Uh, but as you know, part of leadership and you're in the throes of it day in and day out as we speak even, is execution is a critical part of leadership, right? And, uh, and that, of course, creates success. So what is your definition of successful execution as a leader and how do you inculcate that with teams and companies and CEOs that you mentor and talk to? So leaders by definition are visionaries as well. Good leaders also happen to be good visionaries, yeah. which means they see visions. They, they come up with new ideas that deserve attention. Yeah. And it's very easy to be drawn to the next shiny object yeah. for a leader. It's not that, that unlikely to be drawn to the next shiny object. And you lose sight of the fact that you are you are in the middle of executing something. If I look back at my my career as a leader, if I look at the things I failed at, they invariably stemmed from there. There was no other reason when I didn't meet the goal. That was the only reason. So, which means it requires tremendous amount of discipline right. to not lose sight of the ball, to not lose sight of the goal. Yeah. And I'll I'll develop that further. I'll I'll drill. I'll double click on that a bit. 
I, I recognized this pretty early. Uh, one of my one of my coaches, Tom McCausland, he said, "No, Ajit, you have to surround yourself with people who will hold you accountable." And as a boss, I can't always hold you accountable because I will create defense mechanisms. The moment I tell you that you're not doing something, you're going to start coming up with excuses. That's natural to humans. Right. And then you will lose sight of what's what needs to be done. So. Uh, one of my very dear friends now and but at that time my colleague khush mehta he was my he was my conscience he was the man who could call out my nonsense so <laughs> if i could use a phrase that you'll probably be about who call my call out my bullshit right? <laughs> so he would he would meet me with some regularity and say ajit okay now i think you're you've been in one flights too many get <laughs> on the ground and we need to get back on track to implement he was always there to hold me accountable and there was so much safety in the relationship that i could i could bear myself i could be vulnerable and say yeah, you're right absolutely right so finding that one or two people who will be your conscience early in life early in your career leadership career is very important because you will falter right and relying upon your boss to hold you accountable okay sometimes that's necessary but it also creates other pathologies that are not necessary so it's better to find peers or even people who report to you to hold you accountable Right. and that was extremely important for me discipline itself was not a problem i i grew up with a lot of discipline in our home so waking up early in the morning waking up on time having a schedule all those things were very natural to me right but this one trait i had to learn the hard way mm very interesting so so then uh, there's this book i came across in my late 30s it was uh, it's titled the five dysfunctions of a team written by patrick lancioni so again very simple book fable there's no there's not that much intellectual insight in there but to be a good execution person wow this book is is simply bible i mean it's a biblical volume in that regard and and it speaks particularly to the accountability angle in attention to results fantastic and you know it's uh, we we spent quite a bit of time talking about leadership and i have so much more to cover with you that uh, i have a feeling we are going to be doing another another one of these and you will have to make some time again but uh let me ask you one or two closing uh closing uh questions on this whole area and then we'll move on to your incredible life uh on the professional side of things and get some insights from you there for our audience you know uh one of the questions i always have for our leaders is to say when you meet someone what is one of the things you hope one or two of the things you hope to instill or leave them with wow well, uh, a question very relevant uh, in my current context so one of my companies visbe it's it's a company in the infectious disease diagnosis space right. uh, the very first investment i led as a partner at artiman so it's also kind of my first born <laughs> if you will at at work congratulations uh, by the way for uh, the success yeah at a couple of points in time i've had to step in in an operational role at that company over the last 7 and 1/2 years yeah and uh, in the recent past we've turned that company into covid testing because yeah. it was in the infectious disease space it's a very relevant problem yes and which has resulted into a, a place where it has to scale very fast I mean, we right. were going to scale to maybe 100000 units a year in the first year yeah we have to scale to a million units a month so it's completely different so yeah. i have jumped in as the head of hr tentatively <laughs> and which means we have to hire a lot of people we yes. have to onboard them we have to inculcate the cultural values in them get them on board both from a skill standpoint and from a culture values standpoint 
so I've, I've jumped on that road. And so yesterday, somebody asked me that, what would you like? Exactly the same question. What do you want me to do? Like, what would you like me to take away from this? I said, look, I'm an interim head, so I'm going to leave in the next few months. Somebody else will come. Right. What would I like to leave you with? If you if you turn into a more confident version of yourself yeah. in three months from now, I would have achieved something. If you turn into a more authentic version of yourself, I would have achieved something. Now, why am I using these terms from life into leadership? Well, there is no difference. There is no difference, period. There is no line. There is no such thing as work-life balance, period. There is no such thing. Work is life, life is work. Same mm -hmm. principles apply. Now, should you manage your time better in spending time with kids and family and spouse and hobbies? Yeah. Of course you do. But the principles are identical. Like if you've learned life, you've learned to be a leader as well. So what I like to instill very consciously, and it's a painful process because I, I touch some very sensitive nerves in the process. I I call out and said, I said, I think you just told me a white lie. I use those words. And that <laughs> rattles people off. Oh, you just called me a liar. I said, yeah, I did. But it's just the safe room. Just the two of us. I'm not telling anyone. It's yeah. a safe place to learn. Why don't you practice it? Right. So then they'll use a different word that is a little bit less of a lie. I said, no, sorry, you're still bullshitting me. <laughs> no, use a, use a word that actually expresses what happens and not some multiple interpretable version of the word like, oh, I found it challenging. No, tell me you are afraid to fail or tell me you didn't have the skills to do it. Use words that actually are expressive and not use these esoteric words that that you can finish a meeting and move on. Right. So it's a very painful process to, to drill. It, it can also be annoying. It can be irritating. It's training. It's time consuming. But if you achieve that in a conversation, I think you, you've set the right foundation. And then people know how to apply those principles. Application mm -hmm. of principles to real life problems comes naturally. Very, uh, very interesting insight. You know, it's, uh, I've had a lot of guests on this show and each of them have had different insights. But the one you just shared, I've not heard before. And that's a wonderful insight to actually learn from. You know, one other question along these lines is, you know, all of us eventually look at ourselves in the mirror at the end of the day as we retire to bed. How do you know you've done the right thing for yourself? for the people you've interacted with and everything at the end of the day when you look at yourself in the mirror? A couple of things come to mind. I have no difficulty sleeping. I can actually remember only two incidents from as long as I can remember when I was not able to sleep. First incident, my, my, when my father passed away, mm -hmm. 1986, I had a few sleepless nights. And second incident, when my, uh, when my second daughter was born, she had a functional heart murmur and I was busy negotiating with God for a few nights after that. <laughs> I was trying to cut a bargain, cut a deal with him or her or it or the, the universe. Yes. Those are the only two incidents I can remember. I have no difficulty sleeping. Mm. At some level that tells me I'm not carrying Maybe. some guilt, some, you know, some, some ha having done something wrong. It's not that I've not done things wrong. I've done a lot of things wrong. I have also then tried to take corrective measures or at least try to be more authentic about them. Right. Uh, but the ability to sleep peacefully is one indicator. Second, I mean, at the end, how are you measured? I, I think people you know, friends, obviously, are, they matter. But what matters even more than that is your own, own family, your own children. Mm -hmm. what, what will they say about me? Mm -hmm. And naturally, when I'm no more, as I talked about my father, you create a, a more dignified or a more you know, larger-than-life version. 
but when you are living, what do they say? <laughs> that's that's even more important. Right. So I, I feel I feel reasonably good about them. You know, and again, the values are the same: those authenticity, genuineness, empathy. Uh, those are things that make me feel feel good, even when I make a mistake, even when I know I've screwed up, even that realization. Those attributes kind of kick in and at least tell me that I that was a mistake. So, at the very least, you know, gather the courage to apologize. Or, but sometimes it's not even a mistake. Sometimes it's a willful judgment call to do something wrong. Right. Because I didn't have the courage to do something right. <laughs> yeah. yes. And so, so there are, there are many instances of that sort. Yeah. But that quest to correct, quest to take corrective measures to sort of live an examined life. Yeah. That that, that quest is there. That that desire is there. The role of your uh, your profession, and so uh, we we stopped at the um, at the time when you moved on to college. Uh, so walk us back into you know you obviously moved to the U.S. Take us a little bit into your academic career, and then how your professional life followed into the world of medical technology and innovation. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Look forward to it. So if 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 you if you don't mind sharing a little bit how you got to the U.S., what you did, how you jumped into Siemens, and then of course you are now doing incredible. You're you're in the heart of the world of medical innovation activities. So so uh, please share with us some of that journey. Yeah. So the move from India to the U.S. was, I would say, very robotic, very mechanical. Right. <laughs> Almost entire class of mine took the GRE exam, applied you know, to go abroad somewhere. Many of them did, and I was I was one of one of them. So there was a, a pretty standardized routine pathway. There was nothing extraordinary about it. I I ended up in Syracuse University for a year to do a master's in mm-hmm. in computer engineering, and then from there I moved to Columbia to do my PhD in computer science. Uh, a fascinating three years for me. Really, wow. really wonderful. I, I ended up having to drive a cab for a year in New York, and which was, I mean, <laughs> wow, it was one of those most wonderful things that can happen to a person, the, the kind of experiences, the range of experiences. And these were days before cell phones, right? So sure. you, you actually got to talk to people who are sitting in your cab. A uh, number of very interesting experiences there. I, I One of my fares was Oliver Sacks. Uh, mm. And then he, he became a pretty important force for me in my, in my academic journey and uh, longer discussion. Uh, and then after I finished, uh, finished my, my PhD, I joined Siemens at the research lab in Princeton, mm-hmm. uh, which was, again, somewhat mechanical. You know, what do you do as a, as a, a student, a person on student visa who's finished a PhD mm. in computer science? You well, you apply for a job at IBM, Watson Labs, or AT&T Bell Labs, or NEC Labs, or Xerox Park, or one of those companies. This is number nine, immediate. <laughs> yeah. uh, Apple was not yet Apple, and, and Google right. wasn't there yet, and, and so on. Uh, so I, I went to Siemens, and I, I think that's where some really transformative things started to happen. It was a remarkable environment. I got my first role as a as a group leader which in retrospect I didn't do a good job at all but it also set me up for some other things a, a, a very important moment was meeting professor Reinhardt Erich Reinhardt mm. uh, 
he, he had just returned from India as the head of Siemens India to mm. lead Siemens Medical globally in Germany. Right. And he was visiting Princeton where I was on the faculty and I was helping create this group uh, in image processing at, at Siemens Princeton. And he, I got, he and I got into a debate and I was just, I mean, I was this young 26 year old, little experience looking to debate him. And uh, later in the day, he asked someone, who was this Ajit guy who was pretty argumentative? And that, that person who knew us both said, yeah, 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 Ajit, he's, he's very often wrong, but he's never in doubt. <laughs> and Reinhardt internalized that. So not being in doubt said something else to him. Mm-hmm. It said to him that I had some intuitive approach to thinking, decision-making, arguing, which he, which he sort of drew upon. He and I met for a dinner and he outright said to me, you should leave your faculty position at Princeton. You should leave Siemens Princeton, come work for me as my EA. Mm. Wow. Right? And I, I was being playful and I said, why should I do that? And what title will I get? And what salary will I get? None of it mattered to me. And after a, about an hour of debating, I said, okay, fine. And he goes, oh my God. I said, Professor <laughs> Reinhardt, you had me at the hello. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and that man shaped me. He really, mm. it, anything I say about him would be an understatement. Anything I can possibly say about him would be an understatement. Mm. One of the finest human beings, one of the most remarkable visionaries, a great coach, a fine leader, a tenacious um, execution person. Mm. I cannot say enough. Cannot say enough. And, and then a Renaissance man, a musician, the guy, he conducted an orchestra, he <laughs> taught kindergarten. And, and if, if there's such a thing as learning by example, I had an example once a day for the next you know, 20 odd years. Wow. And then, of course, you, uh, out of that, came into uh, having such an incredible coach and mentor. You then morphed into the world of investing and share a little bit that journey. Yeah. So there were a couple of stops along the way there. So he, first of all, he was very good at, I'll go back to Reinhardt for a second. He was very good at giving you kind of successively, consecutively more difficult assignments Mm -hmm. and then being there to observe failure points and mm-hmm. either helping you avoid them or letting you make the, the mistake and then correcting it. He, he used to decide, you know, which one is fatal, which one is not. And the fatal things he would help correct before you make them and the non-fatal things he'd allow you. It was very intuitive. He would actually, he knew that it was better for me to make a mistake and because that would be more, a better learning. Right. And, uh, and he would do things tongue in cheek. So once I made a mistake and the profitability started going down and he said, okay, You've done one turnaround, now do another one. <laughs> and those were very endearing things. Yeah, You, mm-hmm. you felt very safe. Uh, I left Siemens exactly 20 years to the date of joining and, and moved to the Bay Area to do a startup. Mm-hmm. So went from a multi-thousand unit, <laughs> you know, a couple of billion bucks to, to leave all of the behind and, and do a startup with zero revenue and a couple of tens of employees. Right. Uh, so when you earlier talked about leadership and, yeah. and I responded by adaptive. Yes. And to me, that was a, a adaptation in action, a, a different approach, very limited resources and so on. And, and of course, in you know, when something turns out to be a success, you can always attribute it to a great strategy. <laughs> Reality <laughs> was no. There's never been a strategy that I wrote or I inherited that implemented exactly the way it was written. Right. It, evolved, it morphed, and, uh, and that was no different. 
and that's when I joined Artiman uh, as a partner. Artiman was an investor in my company, so that was a somewhat uh, seamless transition. Yeah. And and the philosophy of investment at Artiman has been remarkable. I, it, Artiman, yes, we are investors, but I can truly say we are company builders, and we tend to be very hands-on. We are very nurturing of the entrepreneurs. So we can be blamed for things we do wrong, but a few things we do right that everybody enjoys who works with us is very nurturing, very patient, long-term vision, and jump in when needed. Really roll up, roll up your sleeves and jump in headlong. Mm-hmm. That also requires that there's a safe environment between you and the entrepreneur. Sure. You can't jump in and expect to be to not have the autoimmune rejection response. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's very... I appreciate you sharing that uh, that journey all the way to where you are uh, right now, and uh, of course, you you spend a lot of time in in the world of medical technology and innovation. So, for the benefit of our audience, give us a few snippets of what what we all can expect over the next couple of years in the world of uh, of medical technology that you're seeing that are going to improve all our life. Uh, right. Hopefully for the for the betterment, and then we'll we'll definitely come back to your work at Bisbee, you know, given yes. the pandemic. Like most fields which are very fragmented, yes, such as healthcare, it's a very complex field. Fragmentation leads to natural complexity. Healthcare right. is complex, first and foremost because life itself is complex. By life, I don't mean life philosophically, but life biologically. Right. It's a complex evolutionary process that created this robust thing called the human being. Right. As fragile as we are, that we can fall 10 feet on a concrete floor and cause almost permanent damage to a limb or even die, uh, yet for most circumstances, it's a very robust piece of architecture. Right. Has a lot of redundancy, has a lot of error correction built into it. It can adapt, it can survive all kinds of situations. So to deal with that complexity alone requires a system that's complex. Now to add to it the fragmentation, the various access issues, the reimbursement issues, the insurance issues, lifestyle issues, training, education. It's a very complex ecosystem. Right. So to talk about what will be the trends in a very complex ecosystem is an inherently difficult question to answer. So I, I, I will not uh, pretend even to be comprehensive in my response. I can only focus on a few areas sure. uh, that deserve to be looked at. The very first that comes to mind is diagnostics. You know, diagnostics makes up only 3% of healthcare expense, and yet it controls, it directs, it informs, it manages approximately 75 to 80% of the expense downstream. Wow. So there's a 25x plus leverage on the expense you make up front. And yet it's been ignored. Diagnostics is the, the orphan child of healthcare. The reimbursement or the expectation of what you'll pay for diagnostics keeps going down. Cost of pharmaceutical in many cases keeps going up by many, many orders of magnitude, not just factors. So we made a judgment call at Artman, and, and, and we live uh, to this date to that judgment call that we'll over-invest in diagnostics in across all areas of diagnosis. Right. And one that's very relevant to us today mm-hmm. is, is COVID, obviously. So let me, without talking about COVID, let me talk about what are some of the principles. Somewhere about 50 years ago, diagnostics became centralized to central labs, commercial, these large labs, such as LabCorp or Quest in the United States and similar labs across the world. Centralization was important because the equipment that did diagnostics was very complex. 
it required highly trained personnel, quality control was a problem, so you could only do in a controlled, contained environment that led to centralization. And as a corollary or as a supporting factor, the logistics infrastructure, at least in the Western world, had already become pretty evolved. There were road networks, there were train networks, there were airplane networks. So getting samples from point A to point B, getting reagents from point A to point B, actually was not that difficult. Right. So over time, this diagnostics or laboratory business evolved into a logistics business with a wet lab on the side. Right. It's first and foremost a logistics business. Mm. And we question that premise, why? Yes, it was important to be centralized, but why should we centralize now? Mm. Why should, should it be as far away from the lab and as close to the home as possible? Right. Now, if I have ability to diagnose disease at home, am I likely to diagnose cancer at home? Probably not. Mm -hmm. Am I likely to diagnose my blood sugar at home? Absolutely yes. Am I likely to report result of an infection at home, be it a respiratory illness or a sexually transmitted disease or a, a, a newly found virus like or discovered virus like COVID or, or SARS-CoV-2, 19? Absolutely yes. So a trend towards decentralization of diagnostics to bring them as close to home as possible, sometimes not at home, Sometimes maybe at a clinic or at a pharmacy, but eventually at home will be very, very good. So it's one broad mega trend I can speak to. And second broad mega trend I'll speak to is telemedicine. The technology for telemedicine has been around for since 1960s. First experiments in telemedicine all year 1960s. It was possible then, albeit more expensive. It's the cost of it kept going down. So it was as possible a day before COVID happened than it is now. But sometimes it takes environmental factors to accelerate change. Right. And suddenly all the laws and policies and regulations that were getting in the way of telemedicine were instantly relaxed. Right. Because when a person is sick with a highly infectious disease, the last thing you want is have them come to a doctor's office. Right. Let them stay where they are and let's do as much as possible while they're at home. Right. So I believe now that trend having been set, it's gonna be suddenly applicable to a lot of other things where which was already possible technologically, but Regulation and mindset was getting in the way. Right. Mindset, both of the patient and the doctor. Right. And, and other uh, actors like nurses and so on. So th those would be the two broad trends that come to mind. Mm -hmm. and, and there are many more, two out of probably a dozen, but if they are relevant to the situation today. Well, thank you really for sharing those insights. And give, give me a little uh, update on, and for the benefit of our audience, uh, the incredible innovative work you guys are doing at Visby, especially in relation to where I mean, none of us uh, could have predicted or, or ever thought that we would be in the middle of a pandemic, right. you know, and um, and you guys are doing some incredible work at Visby and especially under your leadership. I just, so please uh, share with us a little bit where, where you're going with this whole issue of on-demand diagnostics, if you will. You know, right. in, in the world that we need to be in, and to be honest with you, I need that to yesterday, right? Yeah, because you know, we all do one, yeah. as it turns out. Right. So I'll come at Visby from two different angles. Yeah. Uh, first, a more sort of macro issue, and then a more micro issue. So the macro issue is, you know, over the last hundred years, yeah. we have created a near perfect sick care system. Mm -hmm. We have almost destroyed a healthcare system. Wow. Yeah, we have created a wonderful sick care system. Right? If God forbid, if you have cancer or some some you know really difficult illness, generally speaking, you are in good hands. There's ample, great science resources, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, available to take care of you. 
But if you're at home and you have common cold, God help you. <laughs> it could be a, a fatal illness or it could be a cold. And, and you don't even have symptoms of illness, but some illness is probably setting in slowly. Yeah. You won't even know. And, and so, and, and there were many reasons why we became a sick care system as opposed to a healthcare system. And somehow a lot of efforts are already in place. But one extremely important area is the empowerment of the individual to both understand the state of your health and then to alter some something in your behavior. Or Now, we often hide behind the fact that behavior is very hard to change. Well, what is so not obvious about eating well and taking a walk and not being you know sedentary all day long? What's so non-obvious about if you're doing it anyway? Yet, it turns out if you're given signals, if you're given data in, in a manner that you will appeal to you because all of us internalize the, the observations we make differently. So it has to be presented to you in a manner where you will be impacted. Like I give you an example, I used to text while driving and one of my daughters, they took a small piece of paper, they pasted a picture of them from childhood and put it on my steering wheel. And that's all it took for me to stop texting. Never texted again. I, I, I do text sometimes, but I, I do it far less than I did before. So sometimes you have to present the, the same thing in a manner that will impact you. However, monitoring of health on a normal basis, regular basis, needs to be done in a manner that does not alter your daily workflow. Mm -hmm. Like if I have to do something extra, like pinch and take a drop of blood out or go to the doctor's office or give a sample, it's going to have low compliance. But if it gets monitored while I'm going about my day, it has much higher likelihood of compliance. And I'm not limiting it to an Apple Watch or counting my steps. I'm talking actual biomarkers that say something about the chemistry in my body and, and hence the how my physiology is functioning. It's possible. It's very much possible. It's possible when you brush your teeth in the morning. It's possible when you go to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. There's ample things in our normal workflow that can capture my health status. Right. They, those things will play a very important role as a key trend in moving back towards healthcare, going from... We need sick care, but we also need healthcare. Mm -hmm. That's where WISB comes. So we, we had a thesis at Ardaman long before WISB was born that we want to be able to monitor health at home. And we said, let's pick one area, boil the ocean. Let's pick one area. And we zeroed in on the infectious disease topic. Mm -hmm. you know, when, when a parent is dealing with a sick child at home, they're tugging their ear. Should I take them to a pediatrician? Should I take them to school? Or should I keep them home? Simple decisions like that. Right. So we, we made a, a simple chart, which had like three arrows coming out of a point in the middle of a paper. And the arrows at the head of the arrow said 10, 10, and 10. I want to diagnose any infection in less than 10 minutes for less than $10 with less than 10th grade education without compromising quality. Right. The accuracy still has to be gold standard. Right. Less than 10 bucks, less than 10 minutes, less than 10th grade education. Right. If we can do it, we can make diagnostics of infectious disease and eventually monitoring of these health parameters, ubiquitous and, and available and easy access and so on. So now WISP was not a company that was born by an entrepreneur coming and pitched to us and say, I have an idea. It was actually the other way around. The entrepreneur was introduced to me by a mutual friend and he came to pitch an idea, a gentleman called Adam de la Zerda. He came to pitch something in optoacoustics. And I listened to him for 20 minutes at Upa Cafe in, in Palo Alto. And 20 minutes later, I said, sorry, this won't work. 
and he goes, oh my God, you know, you arrogant VCs, you hardly know anything about this technology. And you say, I said, my friend, I'm not even a VC. I've just started, it's like day five on the job. Uh, but let me explain why I think it won't work. So I told him a bit about the ecosystem and where the incumbents will stall him. So right. the technology might work, but the incumbents will stall him. 20 minutes later, we said, okay, this conversation is over. I said, look, we have 40 more minutes. Can I pitch something to you? He was a really smart guy, is a really smart guy. <laughs> So then I opened up my laptop and I pitched this idea to him that we had developed at Ardeman, my partners and I, and with the help of an EIR. And he listened to this and he goes, wow, I want to work on this problem. He didn't know what the solution was, but he loved the problem. And he moved to EIR, uh, to Ardeman as an EIR and we started working on the problem. And for seven, I mean, in seven years, we grew from zero to 70 people. In seven months since then, after that, we grew from 70 people to 370 people. And we are scaling, hopefully, to a million units a month. We have a device that, that sits in the palm of your hand. It's small. It's, uh, we didn't quite meet the 10, 10, and 10, but we came pretty darn close. And, uh, but it has the accuracy of a half a million dollar device that you'd buy from Hologic or from Fisher or Becton Dickinson or these companies. It does something called a PCR, polymerase yeah. chain reaction, a term that most of us have now heard because of COVID. It was not a well-known term. <laughs> the last time I heard the term was during the OJ Simpson trial. PCR was used to do some DNA analysis. Um, and the next time I heard in day-to-day life is uh, is during COVID. So it, has, it is a PCR. It has the accuracy of a PCR, but it sit, sits in the palm of a hand and you actually can use it at home. Right now, the FDA has authorized it only for use in a moderately complex lab, which is perfectly fine. But over time, it has the full potential of being used at home. That's incredible. And it'll, it'll be a true game changer as we live through this pandemic for all of us. You know, I, I need to get Absolutely. my hands on one of those. <laughs> a tremendous conviction that it is a game changer. Yeah. Tremendous amount of conviction. Fascinating, uh, Ajit. Uh, we could, as we said, spend hours talking about all these elements of uh, leadership, innovation, technology, all of that. Uh, unfortunately, I have to bring this podcast session to uh, to a close. There's one or two final questions I always like to sort of close with. The first one is, uh, you are first of all an incredibly prolific reader of books. I have not met anybody in my life that does the kind of reading you do. And I look forward with great anticipation at the end of every year, your wonderful synopsis of uh, of what you read during the year. So for the benefit of our audience, uh, share a little bit about as we are, without giving away the the secrets of what you do right at the tail end of the year, what are some of the books that have been uh, on your mind that you're reading of, of late, especially in the middle of, of a pandemic? Yeah, let me talk about the book I'm reading right now. Yeah. It's a book uh, titled The House on Mango, Seas, Mango Street, The House on Mango Street. It's by Sandra Cisneros. It's probably... 25, 30 years old. Um, and it's about a Latina immigrant in Chicago oh. and her coming of age, her transformations, her learnings, her joys, sorrows, and, and living through life. It's it's a story of life. It's a story of anybody's life, your life, my life. And it doesn't even have to be an immigrant's life. The, the immigrant world only highlights certain aspects which, which sort of, you know, get, get drawn out uh, in, in a story of this sort. But the story itself is just a story of life, anybody's life. 
That's what I'm reading right now. I'm totally fat. A friend of mine gifted it to me a couple of months ago. So I'm finally getting to read it. Um, then a book I have uh, uh, I have read multiple times in the last 30 odd years is a book titled The Road Less Traveled. Yeah. It's by M. Scott Peck. Yeah. And I've, I've at least once said it's the best management book I read. Albeit it's not a book on management at all. It's a book written by a psychiatrist. And it's a book. <laughs> on you know, how to live a more authentic life. Uh, I read it first in the 80s, uh, and then every five, six years or so, I revisit it with a different consciousness, with different experiences. And it's strange, you know, when, you, when you're given a lesson, uh, it doesn't fully sink into you because you haven't had the experiences that will make you instantly say, oh, I know what he's talking about. I know what he's talking about. The experiences in life are important. So, so life is a strange teacher. She gives you the test before she gives you the lesson. That's very and, true. I'm rereading that book. Actually, I just picked it up this morning to start reading it again. And 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 the things that happened during the pandemic again create a, a give a different sort of lens from which to view yourself and things you do well and things you don't do well. So those are the two books active on my radar, but there are many others <laughs> that I would like to read before the year is over. I, I got a book just yesterday. It's called The Last Kings of China. Wow. It's actually two competing Jewish dynasties in China that are said to be responsible for modern day China. Wow. It's something I would have never, never thought. I met, met some, uh, some investors of Visby for a dinner yeah. a couple, couple of weeks ago, and this one of these people sent me this book and mail, and I just picked it up this morning. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, um, one final question. We'll close with this one. All of us uh, are going to see eventually a sunset of life. (laughs) And uh, I always ask my guests, what is it you want people to remember you by, Ajit Singh? Wow, man, you touched some pretty sensitive uh, sensitive (laughs) areas. so I think I tried to answer that a little bit. Yes. Uh, first and foremost, I have to do a lot of cleaning up of my own life. Mm. Uh, hopefully I do it before I, uh, before I have to say what people should remember me by. <laughs> uh, but what I'm striving for, striving for is authenticity. Mm. Yeah, I, I think I have, I have grown a, quite a bit in that dimension, but I still, I can't say with conviction that I have purged everything, that I have... Mm. I've had the courage to say everything that I needed to say to people around me. And living with those multiple stories in your head, that's draining, that's really draining. So I'm not implying some deep pathology, but there are, there are still areas of my life I've not fully purged. Right. Uh, and that would be very important, uh, to not have to carry two stories at all on any aspect of my life. Mm. To only have one story. <laughs> uh, and I hope I succeed in that. Uh, it requires more courage than I have right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but once that uh, if if and once that happens, I would like to be known by authenticity. That's a very interesting uh, um, way to put it, and again, one of those unique insights you've given all of us to think a lot about. And you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, we 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 go empty-handed into whatever happens when we finally close, and the only thing people should be able to remember us by, to your point, authenticity. Yeah, Ajit, it's been a Absolute pleasure talking to you this last hour on uh, such a varied amount of topics, starting with leadership and life journeys and all your learnings that I hope that uh, 
will be available to not just all of us, but the future generations. Thank you for joining me on Cracking the Code. And I look forward to another set of uh, these sessions uh, very soon with you. It's been a privilege to walk this life journey with you. Thank you, my friend. Thank you as well. I'm grateful to you for first for this podcast, uh, but far more importantly for, for the companionship you've you know, granted me very, very generously over the last decade. We learn from our reflections in other people. You've been, you've been an important mirror. Sudhir, Ajit Singh's enthusiasm for innovation and creating a better, healthier world for others is evident in how he approaches leadership. He extols the virtues of focus, kindness, and the willingness to foster the next generation of those ready to push the boundaries. It should also be noted that Ajit's insistence on being remembered for his authenticity speaks volumes for his outlook in the field of medical technology. Join us next time for another episode of Cracking the Code with Sudhir Ispahani. (laughs) 